The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. I want to jump into Hebrews chapter 3, so you can turn there. I really want to pick up with the same train of thought. Um, I mean, it's an awesome message. I've, I've heard, I've gotten to hear that a couple times now, and it always, man, it hits so hard, and I think it it creates some tension. And some of you probably felt that as you're going, okay, like you're saying that I'm secure in Christ, but then there's this warning against falling away. What do we do with that? What do we do with the warnings of Scripture? Because for some people, they'll take the easy way out and assign all the warnings in Scripture just to unbelievers. And man, I, I don't think that's the intent of the writer of Hebrews, and I don't think it's the intention of the New Testament, that as believers, listen to me, we will persevere faithfully to the end because the work that Jesus has started in us, he'll bring it to completion. We're going to see it in a minute. He is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the source of our faith. He's the pioneer of our faith. He's blazed the trail that we're to follow. And that path leads to glory. And he's going to bring us there. But what we need to know and see and feel is that, yeah, we need to hold fast to those promises. We need to hold fast to the promise that what Jesus started, he'll complete. That he has sealed me with his spirit. That he'll never leave me and never forsake me. And I equally need to hold fast to the warnings of scripture that say, look to Jesus don't stop listening to Jesus or you'll drift because what's possible for the believer is to walk the path that leads to apostasy. It's possible for us to walk the path that leads to deconstruction of our faith. And we need to hear the warnings because God in his grace by his authoritative voice will use the warnings to draw us back to himself. Just like a good father who yells at his kid, when a, when a car is bearing down on them. We need the warnings. And it's meant, man, there's, the tension is intended. It's supposed to sit heavy on us. So I want to pick up in chapter 3 and look more at this. Y'all with me? Well, hold on. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, holy brothers, who's he talking to? the church. He's talking to the church. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider, think about, meditate on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. And we are his house. If. Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Pray with me again. Lord Jesus, as we wade through this weighty and important and beautiful passage of Scripture, I pray that you would meet with us, that your Spirit would continue to work in our hearts and minds, and that you would draw us to yourself, Lord, that we would have, that we would have the boldness to come to you in full assurance of faith and to receive your grace and mercy. Love you. Amen. So the whole point of the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says at the end, this is a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement. And what he's writing to them about is, man, that, that some of them have stopped meeting together. They've quit meeting as the church because persecution is mounting. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't stop meeting together as the habit of some. Because they're, they're walking away from the Lord under mounting persecution. He's saying, man, you can't do that. You've got to persevere faithfully to the end. He says, you have need of endurance. So what he does in order to encourage them is he says, man, Jesus is better. Don't forget this. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is superior. He's better. Man, he's better than the angels because the word that he brings, the prophetic word that Jesus brings is better than the word delivered by angels. Why? Because Jesus is God. The angels were messengers set from God with the word of God. Jesus is the word of God and Jesus is God. And he says, because of that, man, there's, there's a greater consequence. If there is consequence in the Old Testament for neglecting the word of the prophets, how much more if we neglect the word of Jesus? And Jesus is better than Moses, is what we're going to see in this passage. He's better than Moses. Why? Because he brings and he leads a better exodus out of a greater slavery than Moses did. And he actually leads us into the promised land, into the eternal rest of God. He's better. He's a better priest. Because he offers a better sacrifice, not in the temple made with hands, but in the heavenly reality. Jesus didn't pass through the curtains of the temple, but he passed through the heavens and went into the presence of his Father, where the real mercy seat sits. Everything else in the Old Testament was just a shadow. It, it was an arrow pointing to what Jesus would accomplish. Jesus 
as our great high priest entered into the presence of God and went before the real mercy seat and he did not offer the blood of bulls and goats, but he offered his own blameless and spotless and pure blood. And because of that, he's able to make eternal redemption. He's better. He's better. And he brings a better covenant. The new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Why? Well, because... Chapter 8 says that God finds fault. The, old, the new is better because he finds fault with them. Who? The people underneath the old covenant. The old covenant was never meant to save anybody. It was meant to show us our sin and point to our need of a Savior who could offer perfect sacrifice. Says he finds fault with them. Why? Because they couldn't keep the old covenant. They couldn't keep the law. It shows us our need, but our need is met in the new covenant. Because Jesus takes his law, and it's no longer an external standard that shows us that we're broken and that we're far from God, but he writes it on our hearts and our minds. And no longer is there a temple with all these degrees of separation, the Gentiles far out in the world without hope. Israel as a nation can draw near, but all the tribes have to stay outside except for one tribe, Levi. They can come a little bit closer just, just to serve God on behalf of the people. And then one person, one day a year, can enter into the presence of God, but he better bring blood for his own sin and the sins of the people. He doesn't belong there. He goes in, he sprinkles blood, and he gets out. He doesn't even want to be in the presence of God. And Jesus is better because what Jesus did when he went through the heavens and entered the presence of God, he tore that curtain, and the curtain on earth was ripped from top to bottom. What does that speak? It speaks a better word. It says this, you may come in. Aaron, yeah. Levi, yes. All the Jews, yes. All the Gentiles, yes. All that would come through the name and the work of Jesus can now boldly enter the throne room of grace. It is no longer a throne room of judgment for those of us who are in Christ. It is a throne of grace and mercy. And he says, come boldly and come often. Come know your God. It's a better sacrifice. It's a better hope. It's a better word. His blood, the writer of Hebrews says, is, it speaks a better word than the, the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel, all that called out for was justice. It called out for justice. Sin had been committed, a murder had been committed, and his blood was calling out to God to bring down vengeance and wrath. But the blood of Jesus calls out better. Because what does it say? What does it call for? It cries out to the Father. It cries out to the Father louder, but what it says is forgiveness, redemption. It's better. He wants us to see that Jesus is better so that we'll see that what Jesus has to offer is a better hope, an eternal redemption. It says that because he's better, because his blood is perfect, that he has perfected, in the past tense, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we're able to come with this full assurance. It's an eternal redemption that can't be undone. 
I've been perfected forever by Jesus. Nothing can change that. That's why we see him sit down. In chapter one, he makes purification for sins, and then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, the, the priesthood in, in Israel, the Levitical priesthood, they never sat. Their work was never done. It was never completed. Every day, all day long, they're offering gifts and sacrifices for the sins, the unintentional sins of the people, and they were never done. The priest work was never done. Those jokers would eventually die and they'd be replaced. And on and on and on it went. Jesus came and once for all offered the perfect sacrifice, and then he sat down. He sat down. Why? That work is completed, it's finished, it's over. It's a better hope. It's an eternal hope. We should hold fast to that. Hold fast to that hope. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't let go. Hold fast and hold it fast to the end. He says, you have need of endurance. Why? Because trials, temptation, and persecution's coming. And in chapter three, he gives us this warning. He says, yeah, Jesus is better than Moses. Yeah, why? Well, just like the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, Jesus is worthy of more honor because, oh, he made Moses. He made him. He made him. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house. But Moses' faith that resulted in his faithfulness, that was made and supplied by Jesus. Jesus is the source of Moses' faith. Jesus was the source that made Moses able to be faithful. So yeah, he's, he's kind of worthy of more glory. And he leads a better exodus, but he wants us to look at the people who followed Moses because they had a promise they were brought out of slavery, and God promised to take them into, the, into Canaan, the promised land, to enter into that rest. And the warning is, they didn't make it. They didn't make it. They had some sort of faith. They had some sort of faith because, man, they, they left the only life that they had ever known. Think about these guys. They leave Egypt. They've seen the plagues come on, on Egypt one by one. The last was the worst, the death of the firstborn son, and God brought them out of slavery with a strong right arm. And he led them in the wilderness. What did he lead them by? Do you remember? Mumbling. Cloud by day, right? And a pillar of fire at night. And you know what that is? awesome <laughs> they could see it they got hungry on the way now like when we travel if my kids travel just with me they know this we're gonna stop often and eat a lot of junk food it's, it's great if my wife is there we're gonna stop less often and eat snacks from the house Boo. <laughs> Financially, that's a win. Making the trip fun, uh, 
I could have had this on the couch. I want gummy worms. <laughs> you eat what you want on your trip. I'm going to have gummy worms. They got snacky. They're hungry. They're out in the wilderness. What does God give them? Manna, magic bread from heaven. They get thirsty and there's no water. What does he do? He supplies water from the rock. He is meeting their needs. He's given them the promise and they have their, his provision all along the way. But what do the people do? They grumble and they complain. And you know what they start doing? They start going, man, why did you bring, they say this to Moses, why did you bring us out in the wilderness to die? We're starving and all there is is this manna. And they say, they literally say this, Oh, for the onions and the leeks and the bread that we ate in Egypt. Time out. You're talking about Egypt? You mean slavery? You're talking about the crumbs that you ate from Pharaoh's table while your women were being raped and your babies were being murdered and your men were just working to die. You missed that? They have God's promise and God's provision, but when things were tough and things were uncomfortable, they looked back over their shoulder at the temporary pleasures of Egypt. And eventually, God has brought them to the brink of the promised land. Remember when the spies go in? Caleb and Joshua were two of them, but the other 10, remember what they say? Oh man, the land's beautiful. Absolutely. Flowing with milk and honey. It's like, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Man, it's awesome. Huge clusters of grapes. But we can't go in there. They have tall people. That's what they say. There's giants in the land. They've seen and tasted the goodness of God's promise and word. They had some sort of faith to walk through the Red Sea on dry land. The walls of water stacked up next to him. That took some kind of faith. But God says, all they do is grumble and fall away. And he swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. They wouldn't enter the promised land. And that happened to them as a warning for us. Because if there was consequence for neglecting that promise and neglecting that provision, how much more for us because our promise is better and our provision is better. We don't have manna, but we have the completed word of God. Consider Jesus, the apostle. What does that mean? It means he came and represented God to us and perfectly radiated the glory of God so that we could know who our God is in the face of Jesus. And then he gave us his word to sustain us and nourish us as we walk through this life. As we go through the wilderness of this life with all its trials and all its temptations and all its pushback and persecution, he gave us his word that's better, that's better than manna. We have a better destination, and we're not called to go live in Canaan. Now, a lot, a lot of times we go, <laughs> I get to go to these conferences, and we set up a booth and, and talk about how great Snowbird is and try to get people to come here, and uh, just telling the truth, that's what we do. And 
it's been often we, we get put next to these ladies and they're they're sweet ladies man they're awesome and they're a little bit older and they're uh they're trying to get people to book trips to israel and uh and it's great they're like listen if you book like 10 people you get to go to for free and i'm like no that's a good deal but i i was just joking around and i said oh well i'm just gonna i'm i'm waiting for the new one yeah thank you that's not a great joke. I'm just passing the time. These ladies killed them. Not literally, but I was nervous. Like, they thought that was the funniest joke. I was like, but for real, I'm, I'm going to go to the better one. You can go to that one. That look, it's kind of look arid and dry. I don't know. I'm sure it'd be great. I'm going to the, why? We have a better promise. What Canaan represented ultimately is the kingdom of Christ. New heaven, new Jerusalem. His kingdom's gonna come down and we will spend forever in that eternal rest. But he gives us that warning. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Think about Jesus and his parable of the seed and the soil, right? Scattered, the hard ground, the birds come right away and take it. Other seeds, man, it fell in, grew up, but there was no depth, and the sun came out, and it withered and went away. Some fell among thorns, but it, it grew up. It grew up. It had some sort of response, and initially it looked no different, but it was choked out by the thorns. It didn't last. That's the picture, that there are those that's why he talks to the church. There are those among us who have some sort of faith and it starts out identical to saving faith, but it doesn't persevere when trials and temptations come because what that faith does when following Christ begins to cost you something, When the, when the world offers and you drift and you're not listening, what do you do? You look back over your shoulder. And a minute ago, every one of us thought, that's nuts, that's crazy. It is crazy to say you would go back to slavery to eat onions. How much crazier would we abandon the goodness of the gospel and the better work of Jesus and look back over our shoulders at the pleasures of sin to say that we traded you name it sexual temptation your own authority chasing comfort and entertainment what whatever it is how much crazier will we look back over our shoulders and we long for sinful pleasure at the cost of neglecting the goodness of the gospel and he's saying, don't do that. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. Is there tension here? Absolutely. But let that tension have its intended work. Because what chapter four says is that this word is like a sword and it will pierce you 
to the deepest part of who you are. It'll pierce joint and marrow. And what it gets down to is that either you have an evil heart of unbelief or you have a heart of faith. Do you see that? He says what it demonstrated with that generation was even though that they saw the cloud and they saw the pillar of fire and they ate the manna and they walked through the ocean and they did all those things, at the end of the day, he said, what it showed was they had a heart of unbelief. So he's saying, examine yourself. Better yet, let this warning examine you. He gives us two if statements. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Earlier he said, and we are his house if we hold firm, his house, his people. So the question becomes, okay, like, is it saying that I am ultimately saved if I hold firm to the end. No. What it's saying is, if you hold firm to the end, you are saved. You are those who he perfected for all time. That saving faith, saving faith perseveres. The faith that Jesus authors, he perfects. And what that faith does in the midst of trials and temptations is it perseveres. Does it do it perfectly? No. But it perseveres. God in his grace gave us Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at that more tonight. The example of Abraham. And man, I'm thankful. Because Abraham is in the hall of faith. We should be thankful for that. Did he persevere perfectly? No. No. This is my wife, this is my sister, Mr. Pharaoh. Isn't she lovely? Doesn't look a day past 87, does she? (laughs) You know who else is in the Hall of Faith? Samson. That blows my mind. But I am thankful. Because if Samson's getting in, I'm there. (laughs) No, that's not what I mean. I mean, it does make me think that, but. (laughs) Because our hope isn't in our holding firm by our strength. How do we hold firm? Where does the strength come from for us to grip on white-knuckled death grip to the promises and warnings of Scripture? Where does that strength come from to be able to hold on to the end, to the end of the what? To the end of you, to the end of your life. Where does that strength come from? He's already told us. Look at the beginning of the chapter again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider, think about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful. He was faithful. So we think about him. We consider him. We set our mind on him. That is how we persevere. He is the source of our faith and our ability to then be faithful. But we don't have the freedom to then sit back and go, well, everything's all right. What do we just hear? No, you'll drift. 
you'll drift. So look to Jesus day in and day out. If you look to Jesus, what the Bible says is that he's our anchor. Listen to this from chapter 6. Chapter 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that has entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The tradition is on the Day of Atonement, the one day when a high priest would go in behind the second curtain and make propitiation first for his own sins, this, this sprinkle blood is a picture of God's wrath being satisfied. When he would go in and do that, first he'd have to do it for his own blood and then for, the, for his own sin, but then for the sins of the people. And y'all know the story, what happened to Aaron's own sons? They'd gone in there and they'd gone in there in the wrong way and God killed them on the spot, consumed them. And then he tells Moses, hey, tell Aaron, don't just come in and, at any time in any way, lest he die. And the tradition tells us from that point forward, when the high priest would go in, that they would, they would tie a rope around his ankle, that they would tether that joker off. Why? Because if he dies in there, you going to get him? Nope. But I'll pull his butt out. I'm not going in there. If he didn't make it, what confidence is there? None. I don't, I don't belong in there. This picture is amazing. Jesus goes in to offer his own blood. <laughs> and on the way in, he rips that curtain top to bottom. And he's saying, follow me. And he makes propitiation. And he satisfies God's wrath towards us for all time to perfect us, to give us eternal redemption. He turns around and what was the mercy seat? What was a picture year in and year out? It was a reminder of our sin, but now satisfaction has happened and Jesus turns around. It's no longer just a mercy seat. It is his throne of grace and he calls us in, but, we're, but he's still tethered off. Do you see it? He's tied to something. He's our anchor. What is an anchor? <laughs> What does an anchor do? It keeps you from drifting. It keeps me from drifting. And what does he do? Throughout your whole life, through promises and through warnings, what is he doing? He's pulling you in. He's pulling you in. And sometimes, man, you may start going down that path and you may start to drift, but by his promises and his warnings and the community of believers, he jerks you back. So for us, man, the warning is good. Hear the stern warning of your father saying, don't walk down that path. All that path leads to is destruction. And some of you need to hear the warning because what the warning is gonna expose is you're not really a believer. And that is good and that is gracious so that you don't continue down that path, but you would repent and believe and trust in the perfect, complete work of Jesus. It's beautiful. God in his grace has given us everything we need for this life and godliness to bring us securely home into his presence. Don't ignore that. Consider Jesus.
Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I'll end with chapter 12. One and two. I lied to you. I'm not going to end there, but, but this is closer to the end than where we started. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight sin which clings so closely and let us run with what? With endurance, perseverance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's both the example of our faith and the source of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is where I'm going to end. Brody mentioned it. This perseverance is a community effort. You were not made to go it alone. We were made for community, and we all have a responsibility to one another. You need other believers in a local church. You need to be at a church where the word of God is preached by a qualified godly man. Absolutely. But you need other believers around you that speak truth to you. Listen to what he says in chapter 3 and chapter 10. 3.13. But exhort, right? Don't have an evil heart of unbelief. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 10, 23-25. Let us hold fast to confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us, here it is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You commit to a church. Why? God is using the local body of believers to help preserve your souls. And you have a responsibility. He says, consider one another. I love to tell our church this. I mean, you should prepare for church just as much as the pastor. Your job won't be to preach a sermon in front of everybody, but you should consider how you're going to stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ. The word consider here, man, it's, to, it's like a military term of thinking strategically. You should know, okay, who's going to be there? How can I encourage them? How can I build them up? How can I push them towards Christ? How can I remind them to look at Jesus? We all have that responsibility, and we've all been uniquely gifted by God to fulfill that purpose. It's one of the means and graces that God has given us so that we will persevere faithfully to the end. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.